Psychological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. There's a strange dichotomy that exists in the minds of many people when it comes to violent conflict. Most people would agree that it is always an ugly and unfortunate thing that should be avoided at all costs. Yet, if we look at the world, we see violence everywhere. Beyond this truth, there lies another. In our entertainment, violence occupies the primary position. So why don't our ideals and our reality align? How can we simultaneously glorify and abhor something? Today, we're talking about war. <laughs> All right, so it's good to have you back. Um, <laughs> if the listeners have been um, paying attention, we've had a couple guests. Um, there will be, I'll probably release a, a short show um, in whenever it comes out, but um, I was a guest on another podcast, the Scuttlebutt podcast, um, as well as um, a short series of podcasts with Ramon Mazinga um, that I'll create an episode for and have the links to those in the show notes once they're available. Um, but for now we're back in the studio. Well, I'm um, excited. I'm excited <laughs> that you've, you've, you've been doing all of these, uh, related and new territory kinds of podcasts. And so it's good to be back. Yeah. Yeah. We've, uh, we've both been, been really busy and, um, we left off on doing some different types of episodes. We did a video episode with the Mandalorian and we did some of the folktale episodes. So we're back in the studio doing a traditional episode <laughs> and um, it's, it's about a big topic. I think the last thing we joked about um, was the fact that, you know, we, we wondered where we'd run out of content and when we first started the show and now we're, <laughs> we're saying, well, we haven't even done these big topics yet. So war is certainly um, one of the, one of the bigger topics that you can consider period yes so what what is war well you know the very difficult thing about this and i and anybody who's listening will hear it coming is that the definition isn't quite as easy as one would like it to be (laughs) (laughs) i have that written down actually next to the question i have what is war and then i wrote down surprisingly difficult to define (laughs) i'm going to run with this and then you then we can do our poke back and forth thing all right so I, I'm taking this from a uh, an academic dictionary as well as from A.C. Grayling, the uh, philosopher, British philosopher. Organized violence, war is organized violence between identifiable political units or groupings. Uh, it also implies sanctioning by international law, or else it simply becomes terrorism or gangsterism. It includes subsidiary or peripheral activities such as spying, sanctions, propaganda, diplomacy as pressure. Hmm. So the if we just go with the organized violence between identifiable political units or groupings, there's a whole lot to talk about just in that definition. Yeah. No, that's... That's surprising. I looked at a couple definitions before we started, and I think most of them were more limited in scope than that, because you start to hear about um, some of the definitions or some of the descriptions within that definition, and some of them don't really include violence at all. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, okay, sanctioning or subterfuge or these other things. So, um, yeah, it's definitely um, a difficult thing to describe. It's it's like um, one of those things where it's well it's hard to describe but you know it when you see it so. but yeah right <laughs> but can i ask you this because because of your uh, uh, you have so much in your background but of course you've you've made it clear before that you are a veteran so my curiosity and i never have asked you this directly was the concept war ever defined in your training um no no it never was um and this is this is something that's sort of interesting, especially given the the current global circumstances, right? Um, and something I found interesting doing the research for the show is um, one thing they said was sort of the defining characteristic of war post-World War II is the lack of war between um, major superpowers, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at it, after World War II, um, there hasn't been a lot of major um, wars. There's been a lot of 
things defined as conflicts or, yeah. you know, where you have one power that's um, vastly superior to another power um, going in and conducting operations. Um, and the U.S. has probably been the biggest offender of this. If you look, yeah. um, and this is something that, that Vladimir Putin is saying in Russian media. Um, and again, we talked about it when we did our episode on The Mandalorian. Um, an important part about being a philosopher is not dismissing things out of hand and critically examining things, um, regardless of how uncomfortable it might make us or the people listening, right? Mm -hmm. But this idea is, um, you know, Vladimir Putin has essentially said in Russian media, hey, listen, I'm looking out for my country's best interest. And the, U you know, the U.S. does it all the time. They invaded Iraq to get rid of weapons of mass destruction, and there were none, and there wasn't even credible intelligence there were any mm -hmm. so what makes us worse than them right that's a legitimate philosophical well, question to ask it is even though his basis for asking it might be illegitimate and right right manipulative. Exactly. but as a question it is just as relatedly the and and i'm, I'm going to preface this by saying uh, a full disclosure uh, the ukrainian people are being savaged in every way that we can possibly Mm -hmm. Imagine, and, and and nothing that that you and I are saying, in any way, uh, points to Vladimir Putin as a good guy. Yeah, uh, there's a difference between um, idol, you know, glorifying Vladimir Putin and asking and, the question and pointing out the flaws in U.S. policy. That, that's, and that's something exactly that gets right. lost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I just wanted to say that because I don't want to have us misconstrued. And when you get into deep uh, philosophical discussions, sometimes people can misread what's going on. So we're going into a very important topic here that is layered, and and uh, and so you, I, I think we've established that. So r related to it, or, or uh, that question is the question of even how media began reporting on Russia's uh, war against Ukraine, where in the idea of refugees was. So many cultural prejudices were revealed in the first week hmm. about, oh, well, we don't expect civilized countries to have refugees. This isn't like, I'm paraphrasing, but the, the, the people saying, well, this isn't like refugees in Afghanistan or, or Syria. Why? It's because they don't look quite like us? Really? We're still going to do that? Or because... I want, you know, a couple of journalists, and, and I believe in journalism. So this is not bashing journalism either, but, but it is always got, you have to improve. You have to be careful. And, and to, to refer to, uh, Ukraine as well, we don't expect, we don't expect refugees from a civilized country of this, which implies way too much ugliness about other cultures that are not ours. Right. Uh, and it, it bears, even though I don't think the journalists intended, but, it, and there have been many, folks, not just journalists who've talked this way, it bears the scrutiny of our prejudices. Which is an important stepping stone for talking about war and the motivations for war and some yeah. of these things that we'll get into in a bit. But yeah, war, I mean, uh, you know, trying to trying to define it, right? Like, like we were just saying, um, finding the definition is difficult, but you kind of know it when you see it. And um, yeah, you know, again, just to clarify, um, we're in no way condoning anything that's happening in Russia. Russia is um, even going beyond of what some people might consider war into into other areas that it's just inhumane. It's and I, and I have the greatest respect for the people who are protesting in Russia and being removed. Kids, right, women, yes. elderly, men, uh, everyone, or the, or the journalist who came on mm -hmm. and in the background was say, uh, abhorring the war and was taken out for a while and so yeah because there's interesting things happening and, and this is its own discussion but um you know they how things operate in a totalitarian regime you know putin has outlawed the use of the word war mm. in in referring to what's happening much like there. the sad outlawing, outlawing the use of the word gay in right. school right you cannot outlaw the use of a word not in the 21st century, right. not when people can go around you every which way and should. So, it, you know, it, it brings all that stuff in. But, yeah, you can't outlaw war. You can't. You can try to outlaw war. 
but what's up? I, I we're putting lots of things on the table, and you then yeah, Sergio yeah. just sorted out. But but, <laughs> but 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 the the Pope this week, Pope Francis, uh, following through on a long set of steps, one can discern in in uh, Catholic uh, interpretation of catechism and the encyclicals, the the, the letters explaining positions. Uh, this week said that there that the idea of just war is obsolete that there is no just war anymore now that's a pretty bold statement yeah and and there's been lots of interpretation of it but just the idea that we have arrived where we can we can seriously start to think you know maybe we need to get over this because well that's an interesting statement right because if he's saying there's no just war um it raises some questions that might help us define war right so if he says there's no just war it makes us ask well does a war require two parties right and this Mm. will help us with the russian conflict Mm -hmm. too right Mm -hmm. if the russians are slaughtering a bunch of civilians is that a war or if in in the case of the pope's um usage right if russia starts killing ukrainians and they engage in warfare against the russians is that them participating in war and would the pope consider that not justified and this is where all the interpretations have been going and i don't know if you want to keep do we keep on with this part of the discussion okay because i think this is 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 very interesting because the the catechism of the catholic church uh, is based on three or four principles that uh, St. Augustine established long, long ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but it's still the basis for uh, uh, war. And so while wars are always unjust, uh, in in his view, it, it doesn't necessarily mean defensive positions. Um, so uh, when Augustine uh, was talking, I'm just trying to bring up some, some notes I put together here. First, there are two things. There's there's uh, war, jus uh, ad bellum and jus in bello, both of which mean uh, justice before the war and then justice during the war and the conduct of war. So those are two separate things. And and the conditions for 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 just war, according to Augustine, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or the community or the group of nations has to be a lasting, grave, and certain. Mm. Uh, lasting, grave, uncertain. These are lovely words, but as with all words, as we've talked about since we started this thing, there's much room for interpretation. Yeah, you could you could say the loss of a single human life could could fill those terms. Right, because if know? lasting in the lives of the people around that person, it's grave and and it is certain. All other, second, all other means of putting an end to the, to the conflict must have been shown to be impractical or in fact, effective. So the, the damage inflicted by an aggressor on a nation has to meet the, those things before uh, war can be justified. So there already has to be terrible damage. Hmm. Uh, there must be serious prospects of success. So Augustine, uh, in, in the late... Fourth century was suggesting that you better be pretty sure you have a probability of winning before you do something. And what's the alternative? Is he saying you should surrender if you (laughs) can't win? This has been the debate for for this has been the debate for over a thousand years, Hmm. and it still isn't solved, is it? Uh, So if you can't, because people take issue with that all the time, and understandably, you mean we we don't have a war unless we know. We can win it. Well, it's not saying certain. It just needs to be sorry, serious, serious prospects. Uh, and then the fourth one: the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver, graver than the evil to be eliminated. And that, of course, changed enormously with with the development of uh, atomic and nuclear weapons, biological weapons, chemical weapons, the likes of which m- make mustard gas seem light and it wasn't it was a horror but we are capable of making such things now mm-hmm. and, and have been that that's part of what i think underlies 
the the Pope's position is that there's there, there's the weapons themselves create more uh, problems. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, the 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 one that hangs heavy in the air there is, is nuclear weapons, right? Yeah. So I mean, yeah, by that yeah. definition, the U.S. nuking of Japan would have not been justified, right? Because right. there was a greater evil in the use of the weapons than there was in. And there were lots of people who thought so. Right. Uh, uh, interestingly, Einstein, uh, in, in the twentieth century, Einstein wrote to Freud. <laughs> Just to say that sounds marvelous, doesn't right. it? Hey, and and said, is it is it possible for humans not to have war? Uh, he, he he why why is it that we do this? Because science can't explain it. That was Einstein's position. Said, so, well, we weren't into neurology and and all of those things. The person you talked to this week, I'm not, uh, not Craig, uh, uh, Keelan Cooper, Keelan, uh, I think would pick up on that. Uh, and Freud said, uh, well, violence and inequality are natural to mankind. So he he let he got off easy. He just said, well, it's natural. Well, thankfully, we've we've examined that a lot more. We haven't come to final answers yet, but is it possible for us not to be a violent species? Is a very important question. Is it possible for us to say no? There are other ways not to not to engage in war. Uh, and also, Francis, uh, the interpreters of Francis are saying no. If 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 there's if you're defending yourself against violence, then you can engage in acts which assure that defense. So, yeah, we're already seeing with that brief description, like how complicated and, and you know, s- strange this, this concept is in this definition. Yeah. So do you think war is, is necessarily a, a collective activity, right? You, you think of these, these people where, you know, like uh, if somebody has a personal vendetta with somebody, they'll say, this is war. Right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Thought- something like that. <laughs> um, do you think that, do you think the war has to be, what is at what point does does some kind of conflict become a war? Well, that's a marvelous question, and and I I think that I for for reasons of trying to not have it become this amoeba like thing, uh, I go with the the definition something akin to what I read to you at, at the beginning, because war gets so used as a metaphor that it becomes about as uh, tepid as a word um, as tragedy, because mm-hmm. when everything's a tragedy, then really nothing is. And people always talk about tragic this and tragic. No, tragedy requires certain components. But if I say that and people say, no, the, the tragic loss of my loved one. Well, if I say it wasn't a tragic loss, I'm not diminishing that it wasn't a loss and horrible and, and awful, but not necessarily tragic. By the definitions of what tragic means. Well, war, like like the war on terror, that was an outmoded concept before it started. It was uh, it doesn't fit any of what Augustine was talking about. And I rather like the fact that at least he put those out there and we're still discussing them. Um, you, you you can't have a war on an idea hmm. because you don't have I mean, while you might argue that you have what separate parties, um you you can't just as you talked about with with Putin. Oh, no, we're not using the word war. Well, that's war on a word. No, we won't say gay, and therefore it doesn't exist. That's a war on a word. It's impossible. You can now. I'm now. I'm, I don't. I'm not making light of this, but still, you know, we, I, I can't help but think of Princess Leia and Darth Vader together in one of the, the first scene. The more you squeeze. <laughs> The more things will slip between your fingers, right? Yeah, it can, it can be no more true than if you're talking about some conceptually abstract thing, right? right? You can't, you can never rein something like that in or replace it. From uh, the- no, can I make war on somebody? No, I can terrorize them. I can bully them. There are plenty of bullies from political parties on down. There, but, but to individuals, they're bullies. Uh, but. And 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 bullying is a horror of it in and of itself. So to say bullying instead of war doesn't diminish either concept. But I think at some point, when people you say people think we know what a war is, well, war and not so very long ago, and even within my lifetime, uh, 
was guys with these uniforms and people in these uniforms with this flag and this flag lob things at each other in the hope of one of them winning. Well, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily hold. It doesn't make its violence. Yeah, I'm thinking about it, you know, like, so the question was about, you know, the scale that we need to determine right. what is war. Right, right. And that's probably not a great question, right? Because I'm thinking about it like, okay, well, a person against a person, right? That's not really a war. Um, hmm. And I've had situations in my life. There was one point in my life where me and four of my friends um, got in a fight with about 20 other people, which is a story for another time. <laughs> but you still wouldn't call that a war, right? No. So... And even scaling up farther than that, I think with the war, part of sort of the necessary um, description is I feel like there has to be some sort of guiding leadership. There has to be a strategic component in addition to a tactical component. So it can't just be violence. It has to be guided, directed violence mm. in some aspect. If there's mm. no guiding, directing force, I don't know if it can ever really be considered war. You know, it can be a conflict, it can be a, a fight, it can be some of these other things, even a massacre. But I think a war, you have to have some sort of leadership that is has goals that it's trying to achieve, you know? Well, this is why the, the, the insurrection of January 6th in this country, some people refer to that as a war on democracy. Uh, uh, well, and, and if you start... Working with that definition, and which, which is fluid and which allows no definition probably by definition, is absolute because it, it, there's an interpretive function in, in there somewhere. Uh, so, yeah, uh, 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 three people up against seven people doing something. Well, if three people are of one group and the seven people are of another group and they've organized where they're going to fight and how they're going to fight, uh, the rules by which they fight, and made clear the things that they're trying to gain, Technically, that might be a war, hmm. but that's not really generally how such things go. You, if you're talking about coming out of a bar or something and people are, I don't like your face. Well, I don't like your face either. And it's a, <laughs> that's not a war. Right. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Um, so what does separate war from other types of, of conflict then? You, you know, I think that this sort of guiding leadership and goals and these sorts of things are, are components of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that scale is, is still kind of an interesting it, it, concept. I, it is. I agree. Um, how can we better define it before we, before we continue on? What else should we, do you think we should add in before we start getting into some other questions? I think we, uh, if it's not necessarily, def well, it's a kind of definition. We recognize what we think of ourselves just even just the two of us as necessary in order for it to be called war <clears throat> just the fact that we engage in this intellectuality of, of say well before we label it this I mean, most people would just label it right probably because it's, oh it's war why because i said so but uh, if, if it's there are uniforms in the Russia's war against the Ukraine. Uh, there are some uniforms in the uh, the army of the of the Ukraine, but there are also lots of individuals who are stepping up. Uh, so now you've got civilians or veterans who who haven't fought in a long time coming back in terms of civilians who are volunteering, people coming from other countries. Uh, that doesn't change the fact that it's being a, a war because the initial act itself. Uh, and and the definition of the explanation of why the war began, and, and in this in the case of Putin, as we understand it, uh, it was making baseless uh, all the evidence shows baseless uh, statements about uh, one part of the of Ukraine. Uh, so he says, "I'm going in to stop the neo Nazis." Well, that sounds good, but. I'm going to stop a genocide. <laughs> um, uh, who's being 
killed en masse, and you don't have that. And so it's really hard to make that case. Well, if, if your initial principles for going aren't what you say they are, but then you start talking in speeches and say, they're, they're, oh, well, this is about restoring that which was already ours and never really didn't belong to us, an independence that didn't exist. Now you're having a war of words <laughs> trying to essentially say oh, what actually took place didn't take place. And then that doesn't end it being a war, but it certainly makes it much more complicated to think of as a traditional war. It's not World War II. Well, Vietnam was a Vietnam conflict, the Korean conflict. Well, it also became the Vietnam War, but it was part of the Cold War. And the, the, the very idea of cold just, you know, mm -hmm. in my time, I, I'll say that. So the Cold War is about powers that don't fight directly, but use smaller groups in between them in order to try to achieve some goals. Yeah, it's kind of that, that's that part of that definition you, you read at the beginning of the show, this sort of, um, you know, subterfuge or intelligence, you know, all these sorts of sanctions, that sort of stuff, being yeah. part of a war. Do you think that um, some sort of so territorial identity is probably necessary for war. That that's probably uh, what would national, separate. Yes, yes. So scale. I mean, e even if you have a bunch of people fighting, right? Yeah. If they're if they don't have a place <laughs> that they're fighting for, right? So I think that you have to have a place. There almost has to be a home base. There almost has to be a leadership. There has to be a guiding principle or objectives. And then I think that scale might be the last piece of that puzzle mm -hmm. but i think that now we're sort of triangulating this definition a little bit we're kind of I, getting I, there. I think i th i think that we are I, you know I, einstein's thought when he wrote to freud just as an anecdote was that there really need to be a world government because if you have a world government I know that's a phrase that just sends people off the deep end into biblical prophecy or into all kinds of survivalist mentalities. But but he thought, oh, if you have a world government, people thought the League of Nations, the predecessor to the United Nations, would work in stemming wars. And there are those, who, including the Pope, who have argued that we have now enough institutions um, in the explanation of what was said, there are enough institutions in place that ought to be able to make war obsolete. Because if you have diplomatic, you apply political pressure, you apply sanctions. Uh, it doesn't mean the war is going to end within minutes or hours or days. Uh, but it does mean that the scale might be contained. Yeah, it's sort of cutting off oxygen to the fire, right? That the is, fire might ignite, yeah. but it's not going to burn yeah. through everything if it doesn't have fuel. And I think we're starting to see that with Russia a little bit. Um, and it will be interesting to see how long it takes, right? Because I, I think within the first week of the conflict, you're already starting to see news reports that the, the economy is going to tank. They can't, you know, it could collapse within days, you know, and now we're a couple more weeks into it. And they still haven't collapsed, but you're still seeing the reports coming in more and more, you know, with more and more lines of evidence pointing to them saying, this can't go on forever. They can't continue to survive like this. Um, but look at the, look at the steps, though, that are, that are related to that, that people get angry about. We should establish a no-fly zone. That's what uh, uh, President Zelensky wants. We say the United States now... There are a lot of people in Congress and the senators and, and representatives who say, no, 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 we, we, yeah, we should have a no-fly zone. Well, okay, that sounds good. But to me, uh, it, it, and understandably, this is what the people in the Ukraine want. And so anything I say is, is, is not tainted by any harm or, or hurt firsthand. But with that view, if we have American pilots who then encounter Russian pilots, and they? F what happens if they shoot one of our pilots up? We're going to just say, "Oops, that was an accident." Right. Quite probably not, which means then we are engaged in a war with 
Russia, the very thing that was a nightmare for people from the moment hydrogen bombs and atomic bombs were made. But the very reason the Cold War was happening, so that we would, the, the war, it would be contained in some ugly, awful ways. Uh, but that offers the possibility of firsthand, okay, let's just lob our weapons at each other and see what happens. And, 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 and that's not going to help the people of Ukraine. Right. Yeah. They're just going to get caught in a, a gigantic crossfire. Which is something that the the major superpowers have been trying to avoid since World War II. There's been a lot of fighting of proxy wars, right. which you see Syria was the latest example of that, where um, rather than U.S. soldiers fighting Russian soldiers, there's U.S. soldiers backing one group and Russian soldiers backing the opposite group, and then those groups fighting each other. And that's and- the coldness of it, whereas a hot war is we're shooting at each other directly. So think of it. It's just it's boggling, isn't it? Let's see. How do we ship in top-of-the-line jets from from Poland into Ukraine so Ukrainian pilots can fly those jets against the Russians? American-made jets... <laughs> But it's not us fighting the Russians because it's just our weapons. We're, good gravy. Yes, all, <laughs> all of the intent is there. All of the intent is there, right? We, we are essentially want to fight a war with Russia, but we don't want to do it ourselves because that um, opens a new doors, new possibilities into it. Yeah. So we're still kind of talking about that. What separates war from conflict, right? So a cold war, you know, the absence of violence can... Well, it's not the absence of violence. It's the absence of direct confrontation. Right. Um, do you think that there can be a war in the absence of violence? So let's see. If we think about the original Cold War, yeah. um, there were still proxies being fought and stuff. No, there, were, there was a lot of death. Right. Spies. <laughs> um, um, smaller countries. So let's see. If you, if you have a territory and you have some guiding leadership um, and you w- – yeah, where do you um, – and you have this some sort of antithetical position to another country. Hmm. Um, yeah, how much violence does there have to be before it's a war, right? And, 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 and how many rules? Is. That is, yeah. that is how much violence, and, and, and what are the rules? If there are no rules, then technically it falls out of the, the purview of war. Then it's terrorism or any other range of words. Look it up in the, in the thesaurus. You'll find plenty. It's, uh, war implies rules. Geneva Convention, the Hague Convention. The This is who we, we can legitimately attack, and this is who we can't legitimately attack. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, so for me, I think that's probably the most fundamental Part of it. I think that is a good piece of the puzzle. Territory, leadership, goals, rules. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, I think that we've, we've gotten through that, that essence part of it pretty good. So let's ask a formative question. And this, this harkens back directly to Freud, the psychoanalysts, um, and some of the other psychologists of the time. They had sort of two schools of thought regarding why does war develop or where does war come from? Uh, you want to talk about them a little bit, or yeah? Well, yeah, yeah let's because it requires introspection um, ourselves. Uh, if we if we think of all the things that we have done as a nation to achieve uh, goals. A lot of it is very bloody and very hard to accept. Um, this is what scares people who want to never, nobody should be made uncomfortable thinking about their history. You don't think about history without it being uncomfortable. You can't. The very nature of humanity is you can't. Uh, so what do we do? We, we want this stuff that you have or the territoriality. We want what's under the ground in, in, in what you have. Or we want to have more control in how the resources are used. Or we don't like the fact that you believe this and we find it counter to what our own beliefs are and therefore we need to help smash you. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's sociological. It's it's obviously political. It's psychological. It's economic. Um, and do I do I 
think that we have never done things like that? Well, of course we have. We want your land. Therefore, we'll force a march and and kill on just huge numbers of indigenous people. Why? Because we want their land. You have to go over here. We want to work our land. So we're going to go over and we're going to go to another country and we're going to take the people that we need to be our labor. Why? Because we can. You know, is that a was that a war against the Af- the people of the African continent, slavery? Um, Let's see. I mean, okay. So there was two territories. There was guided, directed leadership. There was um, a structure, uh, and there was there was violence, right? There, so there I, was silence. So you, yeah, those. But the the missing key, I think. And I, there'd be people who disagree with this. I think there's also a, a, a suggestion of an implied, if not balance of power, uh, something close to it. Yeah, and that's something we talked about at the very beginning, right? Was like, what separates a war from a massacre from terrorism, right? And I think that that is part of it, too. There has to be some sort of uh, a back and forth. Right? right. If it's one side just taking something, that's not war. I mean, right? Slavery was uh, the ugliest possible, most violent, psychologically, physically t- uh, possible economic activity that there that there could have uh, been. It, 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 it was terrorism, ripping people out of their complex cultures, saying nope. We get to, you know, and I'm oversimplifying, but that's, so I- I think that is a good sort of case study, right? So we define these sort of parameters in the beginning, you know, territory guided leadership, um, you know, structure rules, these sorts of things. Slavery had all of those except for the other side that could fight back. So it wasn't a war. But then when the civil war happened, when there was a, a- of military force that could fight back there was a war right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i think that 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 sort of is kind of a you know something that that validates and some it was of the a war over economic activity <clears throat> uh you know there are people who like to pretend that the civil war had nothing to do with slavery the, the, you, you rationally it's very uh, hard to talk to people who are rational <laughs> and <clears throat> of course it was about Slavery, the economic system, the viability of the South, and so on. It was about propertarian, uh, treating people as property, not as human. We know all of that. We know that two thirds of treating somebody as one third or two thirds a human being and all that crap. <clears throat> so it was economic. It was sociological. It was political. It had armies that were discernible with uniforms that were different. <laughs> So, yes, it became a war. Yeah, so I think that what we just covered is kind of um, one of the accepted schools of how warfare developed, Mm. which is kind of like an evolutionary viewpoint, right? If you look at um, chimpanzees or other primates, you see they they engage in warlike activities. They have groups with territories. um, They have, um, you know, these sorts of things, and they fight. And so a natural sort of sort of conclusion to draw from that is that okay well then humans over the course of time um merely have they have this instinct right it's it's instinctual it's sort of Mm -hmm. built into us um to claim a territory to fight for resources to do this sort of thing um but that isn't the only thought on it there is um philosophers who say um who point to uh modern day examples actually and they say well listen here's a tribe that's untouched by people um, that's pacifist. They refuse to fight, right? Yeah. Um, so if these um, people who have been uninfluenced by technology or outside social norms and stuff refuse to fight, um, well, then that sort of points to an enculturation or an indoctrination of an acceptance of violence um, through the course of somebody's life, being sort of born into a society or a culture that that accepts and encourages this sort of behavior. Where do you think we, what are your, what are your instincts on that? Where do you think we fall between those two sort of paradigms? You know, I, uh, as a kid raised in 
well, self, self-taught in science fiction and all the pop culture, I, I wanted to believe that human beings could contain their own violent natures. And I think life has proven out to me that individual human beings are. We are all capable. I think it's arguably of sound that we are all capable of violence that we might not think we are. If put in a circumstance of impossible pressure, um, there's there's a, a, a flawed logic uh, argument in which people try to say, well, you can be you can take a position on any kind of topic related to violence, but if it happened to somebody you knew, somebody did, then, then you might want to kill somebody. Well, okay, that doesn't prove anything. They might want to kill somebody. Is not the actual killing of somebody. So I, I think that I fall in what you just laid out as, yeah, it's hard work, but we are capable of not doing it. Yeah. I think it makes sense to um, think about a position between those two paradigms, right? Because it does seem pretty logically coherent and almost irrefutable that um, looking at our sort of ancestral past and the way humankind has developed, um, they're probably, like you said, I think that there is a violent instinct. And there is something that, like you said, if somebody's put in a situation where flight isn't possible and fighting is, is in, in the only response, they're going to they're gonna do that. And I think that there is part of that that's hardwired into us. Yeah. But I also think that humans... Ha- our rational species, right? We have consciousness and the ability to critically think, and we have the ability to um, analyze situations. And, um, you know, I think that outside of that, there are cultures that do encourage conflict and societies that, that breed that into people, and there are societies that do the opposite. And so it's the or way- groups within those societies. Yeah, yeah, so it's the way that the human prefrontal cortex, right, engages and synthesizes and, and sort of meta and analyzes the context they were born into and the things that they've been taught and their natural instincts and all this. Yes. And I think that it's not so far outside the realm of possibility to accept the fact that there are violent instincts that are encoded into the human species, mm-hmm. but that society and cult and enculturation and individual propensities um make it possible for those to be um, subdued, but that not many societies or cultures go through the effort of prioritizing that. I, I think you've, you've said that very well. Uh, um, um, Thucydides, of all people, who were writing of the history of the Peloponnesian War, Thucydides said, uh, I'm paraphrasing badly, but he essentially said that war... It's where the idea of real politic came from in the 20th century. War is an, an unavoidable extension of political reality. Hmm. And I'm going to what you just said is no, only if it is taught that it is a natural or a irreducible extension of that. I don't think that it has to be. And, and I think that even as far back as Augustine, as far back as Cicero, Cicero said that it's much better to have an uh, uh, an, uh, an unjust peace than a just war. Hmm. Yeah, there's a lot packed into that, you know. So there's the, but that is a necessarily uh, culture, whether it's the entire culture or it's within the culture training. Nationalism has been an inevitably. A, a constant source of of warlike tendencies, and that I think comes off of what Thucydides said uh, or observed, rather. Yeah. So, what a, what have philosophers' stances been on war historically? You just talked about him. What what have some other philosophers said? Are, are all philosophers pacifists, or have there been philosophers who are? <laughs> I already no, know the answer because you know the answer to that because there are some <laughs> philosophers who are great generals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's let's you know that all philosophers and leaders are not pacifists, and all 
philosophy is not about war. So, so no, but I'm, uh, some of the, the, I, I've, we have, inter- we have talked about some of the key players, so to speak, Cicero, Augustine, we get up to the 20th century, uh, Bertrand Russell was a, a high powered polymath, but a, but a philosopher. And, and, and Bertrand Russell, uh, thought that the entire planet had to be organized on a, a same principle, you know, the, the, the global government, so to speak, uh, if it were going to be possible for us to stop having wars. But, but we seem to have this sense that still, well, okay, there are good guys and bad guys. So that's really simplistic, but yeah, Putin's not a good guy. <laughs> His record all the way back to what he was his KGB. No, no, no. But you you can't take a culture, uh, societies, and nations, uh, declared priorities, and export them as if uh, and, and as if you can put it in a shot and inoculate or vaccinate a planet. Uh, with those priorities, just because you say, well, you want to be organized according to democratic principles or whatever the principles or, or, or Quranic principles. And therefore it applies to the whole planet. But we know that uh, that's partly what jihad is about. We know this partly what trying to, um, win the hearts and minds of people <laughs> in, in, in a military sense when we're trying to establish democracy everywhere. Uh, we're really not, I think, I'm being honest still about it. What, what, what we're, the organizing principle is trade and capitalism. The organizing principle is, and not everybody accepts capitalism. Oh, here goes the guy who's going to talk about Marxism. Well, you know, not not necessarily, but but I but I but I think it's inevitable that it comes up. Why do we really do it? Do we really believe that everybody has the right to think what they think? Do we really believe that everyone has the right to make their own decisions about their own bodies, whether those bodies are thrown into war or whether those bodies have decisions made for the health of the individual? We like to say that but we do not say it consistently we don't believe it consistently our nation does has proven time and again that that is not what we are about yet it doesn't mean that it can't be but it's not uniformly what we are about yeah it raises an interesting prospect right and i think that it's it's um you know an important thing to address i mentioned it in the monologue talking about how a lot of our entertainment is based around violence and it's interesting to see what the what the implicit messages in that right because Hmm. one thing that you just pointed out was and and what why we have earlier in the conversation when we were talking about putin we had to do a whole lot of clarifying and disclaiming and all of this is because the trope of storytelling is for there to be a force for good against a force for evil right in reality it doesn't always play out that way because there is no evil pure evil and there is no pure good and lots of times at a at a national level there's many other things that have nothing to do um with moral precepts that are determining why the war is being fought so when we look at it's easier for us to say putin's a bad guy based off of the things that he's done and then our instinct based off of our our narrative nature is to assume that we must be the good guys fighting the bad guys, right? But then you hear Putin describe his motivations for war and compare himself rather than contrast himself with the United States. And then you start thinking about the things the United States has done. And you start thinking, well, maybe sometimes bad guys fight bad. You don't see the Joker fighting the Sandman very often, <laughs> right? But maybe that happens. Or maybe the idea of labeling somebody as a bad guy is just something that isn't really possible at a national level, given all of the complexities and intricacies. The day-to-day decision-making that happens. Uh, 
we we know it's on record. It was said a couple of weeks ago by the former president Trump that Putin was a genius, that uh, this is a genius strategy, and that when he's reelected, he would like to use this on the southern border. Now, he's always flapping the gums and saying things, so I'm not going to go there. But the very fact that a world leader who, had, who was recognized formally as a, an office holder could speak that way uh, points to, the ah, there's very little difference. Right. Uh, and that's troubling because that storytelling that you tell, well, there's a reason we tell it because we want to try to be better than worse. It's not, and so we, we start with the idea of the good guys and bad guys. That's just rudimentary ethics to try to, to try to uh, establish positions so that we can constantly, we have to do the hard work of wrestling against not being the bad guy, knowing that to somebody in somebody's life, you're going to be a bad guy no matter what. Mm. You might never visualize yourself. And this isn't relativistic. It's just how we, we go through our days. <laughs> um, you don't intend to be anybody's bad guy. But you end up being so. And if that can happen on an individual basis in a local community, it can certainly happen on a national scale or an international scale. Absolutely. So um, one more formative question. Do you think that war is still motivated by the same things today as it was in prehistoric humans? Do you think <laughs> it's still about territory and resources primarily, or do you think that there's other reasons that we fight now? I think we cloak it in other reasons, but I, I still think primarily it's about, primarily, not absolutely, about uh, territoriality and, and resources. Any number of science fiction novelists and futurists who are philosophers and scientists who project and try to see something of what might be coming point to what they refer to as the water wars. <clears throat> When the environment continues to collapse, when people are flooded out of their homes, their islands disappear, their, their, the cities, you, you, less territory, less real estate, less space, uh, messed up systems of infrastructure. Oh, but there's water over there. Oh, we've got the city in the desert. Phoenix, <laughs> or any number of we 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 think we can live anywhere, and we have the and the right to use up enormous resources in order to live in that place. Why? Because we have the right to live anywhere, uh, and that eventually leads to war. Because if some group thinks that it has the right to live anywhere, that means it's putting some other group at risk. So inevitably, there's going to be conflict. Hmm. Um. I just straight off the version. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's, we were talking about um, if you think war today is motivated by the same thing um, that it was prehistorically. I, I, I yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that I think that you're right. I think that much like we just talked about, I think we that people try to cloak it under different guises, right? I think that it is primarily um, in a strange way, right? It's it's about economics primarily. It is about um, having enough territory for your people to occupy and having enough resources for those people to survive. Mm -hmm. That is the number one primary um, um, instance for war, which sounds like it's bred out of necessity. But in the case of, let's say, the United States, right, it might be more bred out of greed or excess if you think about or, wars or, fought for oil. Right. right. Or, or, or unwillingness on a uh, heavily aggressive scale to think past the current models. Fossil fuels have not been around that long, but we act like it's the only answer to everything. Mm -hmm. And and when people are really pressed to it and all this talk about how expensive gasoline has, has been for a few weeks and how it's changing lives, and I'm not mocking that, but I'm thinking, okay, right. So am I going to support a, a, a war somewhere else that – uh, this is what any individual is eventually probably thinking. Am I, am I in support of a war that's going to keep prices on gasoline going up? Gee, let's see. Here's my balance. 
I want to be able to drive as much as I want to be able to drive. Um, yeah, sorry for those people. Maybe I just want the gasoline to cost less. There's no way to not argue that it's an economic imperative. Yeah. yeah and I think that you can see that demonstrated in like, um, it's, it's a pretty common thing on social media right now for people to say, um, oh, well, Americans are complaining about gas prices while Ukrainians are just trying to survive. You know, how yeah. selfish, right? Um, but really, again, those two things are, are, are based on this sort of economic model, right? For yeah. the for United States, it's as simple and as, you know, um, uh, you know, as, as gasoline prices. For the Ukrainians, it's still about territory and resources. It's yeah. still an economic battle on some regards. Yes. But I think that the change in modern warfare versus ancient warfare is now the sophistication of modern governments attempt to cloak it in ethical um light based yeah. off of our cultural storytelling whereas in the past it was it was just openly about economic battles right? yes i i think that that's the distinction and you can and one can say all one wants to well this is just about um defending my country no when you go into another country and you ravage it and you say well it was originally part of you anyway and so they are because i snap my fingers and say they i don't recognize that they ever were independent this is all ours uh we love them. <laughs> right, right, right. How would we react? It's as simple as this. It's just that we, we, because we don't like to think about this because after all, we we're separated by oceans and all that stuff. How would we react to people? This is why the, the alien invasion thing used to work for me. Suddenly, some other species arrives at this island, Earth, <laughs> and says, ah, we need you for food. We need all of your resources, and we'll leave your uh, your rock an empty husk. But you were going to do that anyway, so <laughs> we're just doing it faster. And we need this more because we're looking out for our needs. That that look, I'm just looking out for my needs is a fallacious argument. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you could look at it two ways. It can either be fallacious, or it can be. The way of nature, right? Because Stephen yes, Hawking was yeah, Stephen yeah, Hawking, or was yeah, was was it Hawking who said that about alien species? He said, you know, we should not be trying to contact these species <laughs> because it's going to be very similar to Columbus and, and the Native Americans, yes. right? And if you look at nature, um, there's there's a lot of other species that are observed to engage in um, warfare according to certain descriptions. You know, ants and other primates and these sorts of things. And um, usually, it is you know, well, I want to eat you. <laughs> and I'm willing to sacrifice some members of my species to make sure that our whole tribe and our whole colony can eat. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and you know, we've talked about that before on the show, right. Is that we, uh, we put an ethical spin to it and whether or not you consider that valid is based off of your own principles. And I would never, uh, you know, tell people what is right or wrong. But, you know, some people are vegans, right. Because, um, they think that eating um, animals is wrong because yeah. of you know the animals um, sort of uh, you know their their capacities, right? Um, but that person still kills plants to eat them, right? So the way of nature is to kill things and, and eat them. You unless, can't survive uh, any other way unless you belong to the Jains, <laughs> right? J a i n s. Who feel that way about plants too? Who who survive on the very uh, just minimal? They're fascinating, um, but but it's a group of humans who've managed to do that. Mm -hmm. Thus, it's another model. No, I don't want that model. Okay, fine, I understand why well, you don't. But but it's there. It's we are capable. We have demonstrated that we have that capacity. Yeah. So it raises man, it raises all kinds of interesting <laughs> questions about the human condition when you talk about war. Um, let's, let's wrap up just, um, addressing the question head on that we've sort of been, um, talking about indirectly over the past few minutes, mm -hmm. which is what does it say about us that war occupies so much of our storytelling? If we think about, you know, the, how modern, modern warfare, right. Is sort of, we got rid of the, the overt reasons for war and, and they're kind of cloaked in this, um, these ethical, um, you know, tropes that are, are probably based uh, on, you know, our storytelling and our, our cultural. What do you think that that says about us? And again, 
this is from a primarily American point of view, right? There's going to be other cultures and other societies that say, well, violence doesn't, you know, inhabit our storytelling primarily. But throughout time, from a Western viewpoint, it is something that- It's really hard to, I I would, I think it's, when we look at stories from across cultures, uh, I've I've done a fair reading. I would, I'm not master at it, but uh, there's violence in, (laughs) in a, Almost, I, I almost every culture stories. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, what does it say about us? <laughs> Conflict, as as Aristotle knew, when he was establishing the idea of of what's uh, acceptable, the, the rules for theater. <laughs> without a without conflict, we don't have a story. Hmm. It doesn't have to be physical conflict. It can be internal conflict. I want this, but am I right to want this? There's a conflict. Am I, <laughs> I, I, I come to a place on the road. Which way should I go? Oh, a scarecrow tells me. Oh, now I've got a friend. But what happened if I went to that other direction? There's a conflict. So it's. I think the human nature part is that we have, we inevitably, because we breathe, we create conflict. <laughs> um, does that mean it has to be violent and brutal and so on? Not necessarily, but... But sometimes little conflicts often lead to that. And I think that that is, I mean, it, it, it does relate to what we were just talking about, right? This survival is conflict in some regards. And if war comes back to economic, the economic precepts of um, having territory and having resources, then like we just talked about, it takes resources to survive, you know, are we coming into conflict with with a plant when we cut it down and it's trying to to eat it? Right. Yes. That's a battle of living things in it, some regard. It, it is, and they've developed different strategies. Plant, you know, a plant might develop the strategy of very quick reproduction and growing in adverse environments in order to spread all over the earth, so that the number of them that get eaten is much less than the number that can continue to thrive. But it's still a conflict, right? There's still parts of parts of the species that are getting um, destroyed is. for you know for this, and and so that that part of it is sort of built into it, life. It is built into life, but I I think that our story our storytelling is certainly entertainment. We've entertained ourselves since we could use language, but I think there's some more to that. And and if we tell stories about conflict, I think we are inviting ourselves. We don't often to always take the invitation, but we are inviting ourselves to consider why that conflict happened. Is that the, It breeds the very questions we're asking. Is that conflict necessary? Why did Sauron do what he did in, in The Lord of the Rings? And, and so Gandalf, why did Gandalf stand and do this? And, and, and it makes for a grand, grand story. And yes, the forces of, of the West won. But we know that everybody that we've encountered in those stories in the West is not what we would call an upstanding and good person. So the reason that story lingers is that it wasn't as simplistic as everybody who's fighting on one side is good and everybody who's fighting on the other side is bad. Those stories don't last. Hmm. Those are ephemeral. I think the stories that last are the ones where the the protagonists are uh, eventually, because of other people prodding them, seriously question themselves. That's why Batman spoiler. <laughs> it's not really one, but when we come to the idea of vengeance as vengeance is just not something enough to sustain a story. Hmm. There's got to be something more uh, meaningful for what has been taking place. So I'm going to go back to your other question as, as we get to the end of this, but to, to say that, yeah, primarily it's territorial and resources, but it's also ideological. We want people to believe what we believe. And if we have to batter them into it, legislate them into it, you know, somehow we, we think we need to do this. Yeah. And that that's interesting. That's sort of a, you know, again, we never we never answer anything in this show. We just ask different questions. So why not end the show by opening up another question, right? But that's an interesting part of warfare, right? So far we've we've talked about it and approached it as um sort of these nationalistic interests that have um, the goal of either, you know, subsuming a a different part or defending their part. Um, But you look at 
there there are instances throughout history of um places that have um taken over other parts and and offered um some citizenship or have mm-hmm. attempted to um sort of synergize cultures or you know and that that adds a different motivation to war as well right so you know what we've discovered over the course of this conversation is that it's an immensely complex thing and you know on its face value it seems like it's it it's a simplistic thing right well we know it when we see it it's pretty obvious right and then we've just continued to to talk about it and explore it and it's really led us into some of the deepest parts of philosophy and the deepest parts of of human history and the deepest parts of the human mind and, and how we operate can i i, I... I'll end my part of this with you with something from somebody who's not generally considered a philosopher, Dwight Eisenhower. Okay. Eisenhower, who was a general and who was a president, said every gun that is made, every warship that launched, uh, it's not even saying the war is happening. Every gun that is made, excuse me, every warship launched, every rocket fired, signifies in the final sense a theft. From those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. Hmm. Well, this is a man who is uh, the the building of the military industrial complex. That 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 term is is ascribed to him in his administration and the things that. And yet, he was still thinking about this. The very fact of we take resources to make a gun means we've taken something away from somebody else. Now that's pretty forward thinking, even if it doesn't live itself out in. And yeah, in, in the actions of the man. Yeah. And it's very um, powerful thinking for anybody who's interested in um, politics and, and specifically budgets today. Right. If you look at if if you're interested, look at the military or, you know, the, the government budget and how much of that is non-discretionary defense spending. And that's a very important term. Yes. It's it's enormous, and when you enormous. when you look at when you compare it or contrast it um, to other ventures of the government, like education or infrastructure or these other things that we consider very important it, and you know structural pillars of society, and you contrast this spending, um, it really brings into stark relief where the um, priorities of a nation lie. You know. And this is uh, this has opened a lot of avenues for us to have discussions in the future about other things that that relate to it. So it's been great. But until next time, keep pondering.